I don't want to talk about that. I'm more more issues to be talking about than that. The time right. was still, still dark at the start, but it got brighter and brighter nearly every oh, day. Yeah, mine over six months because this is our season. I think that's a rough. I'm up to the gutter to get where I am. I'm delighted to be here, but it's been earned. It's, that's it's, for a, sure. it's a great honour. It's kind of surreal, really. The whole thing has okay, been. Okay, you've won them all, and that's pretty mental. What people in social media have done is disgusting. This is Sportsbeat Extra. On this week's show, I'm speaking to one of the region's most respected golfing experts about Seamus Power, Rory McIlroy and the 150 at Open. But first, I'm joined by the League of Ireland veteran who worked alongside a Manchester United legend. I'm Sean Connolly and you are very welcome to Sportsbeat Extra. Sportsbeat with John Kennedy Motors, Cashel Road, Clonmel. You'll never take a wrong turn with Toyota. View our full range of cars at johnkennedymotors.ie. Very pleased to be joined by the League of Ireland man, that is Mr. Connor Sinnott. It's great to have you on the show. How are you today? Good, Sean. Yourself? Good. We'll take it back to the start. Obviously, an extremely talented young footballer gained international recognition at under 14 level. What are your fondest memories from those days? Bit bit of time back now. Obviously, we're moving on at this stage. Yeah, but what yeah. was it like putting that jersey on? Doing well to to uh, recant any memories from back then. <laughs> now at this stage, but uh, yeah, 20 plus years ago now at this stage, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> sure, for me, I suppose Sean really it was. I just absolutely love playing football. Mm. At the end of the day, the same as most chaps. Um, there was there was a bunch of five or six mates of mine, and and we done nothing but. Uh, eat, sleep and drink football um, playing with Rossler Rangers at the very start and, and All Blacks I suppose is when I first started taking it a little bit more serious um, a good good junior club down in Wexford and um, yeah it kind of progressed reasonably quickly I suppose when I was a chap um, you know 12, 13, 14 Kennedy Cup and that that kind of stuff so you know I think after the Kennedy Cup um, I would have got a few opportunities to go over to the UK and Wolves and um, Forest and Leicester and a few different clubs and stuff like that and just got to, got to dip my toe I suppose into that side of things and the more serious side of it um, but I was still only 13 um, so yeah a, a crazy experience I suppose but um, from there I got called into a, an Irish under 14 team as far as I can remember um, played a couple of internationals against Scotland and Northern Ireland it was in around the time of foot and mouth actually so a lot of stuff got cancelled um at that time as well but yeah i was just um i was just enjoying it really um if i was if i was getting an opportunity to go off and play football instead of go to school i was i was quite pleased with that um and and uh, my parents probably weren't overly pleased at the time but uh, they were happy to see me trying to making a go of it i suppose but uh, that's that's really what it was i suppose back then it was it was uh, you see your name in the paper um when you were called into an international team so i'm a couple of Myself, uh, two two Waterford guys, Bobby Cohan and Daryl Kavanagh, and myself and one guy from Kilkenny, and I think the, the pretty much the rest of the makeup was was Dublin and Cork, uh, and maybe one or two other guys scattered around. So it was it was quite a big thing, I suppose, at the time to be um, forcing your way into that and played fourteens and fifteens, um, wearing an Ireland kit at fourteen or fifteen years of age. Um, you know, playing in front of a decent crowd. Um, I think I remember went up and played Northern Ireland. Um, in a some sort of a mini tournament up there or whatever, and you know, and the parents were going and all the rest of it, and and it was quite a big deal, I suppose, at the time. Um, but I suppose at that age, you you don't really think about what's you know the bigger picture as such. You're just kind of living and breeding it, um, and enjoying it. And as I say, I was I was surrounded by guys who just loved playing soccer as well. So that's it. Um, that's it. I suppose from the days of going to Bray, what was that like initially? Um, a big, big contrast because you're you're essentially. I say I went from fourteen, fifteen, maybe spending a few weeks over in the UK and stuff like that, and things not working out. You come back home, you're still playing away and enjoying it. Um, then we started playing with 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 Mick with the Wexford Utes, and obviously that was that was quite a serious setup for us, but. 
Um, at the same time, very much an amateur kind of a situation. We won the Youth All Ireland in 2005, um, and within a couple of months of that, I was up. I'd signed with Bray. Pat Evelyn was the was the manager at the time, and um, got got on very well with Pat. And um, yeah, went straight in straight into the first team. And I think we played Cork City. Uh, was the first game up in the Carlisle grounds, 2005 six kind of time. Um, Cork would have had a savage strong team at the time. George O'Callaghan, John O'Flynn, and and those guys. Um, Kevin would have been just gone over the water, over to over to Reading. So for me, it was it was a bit of a wake up call in terms of the physicality side of things. Going from you know being well able to hold your own, obviously in terms of under 18s and 19s, but stepping up to that senior level um, was was a huge jump. Um, so look, at it, I I got on quite well. I played me a few games there. The opportunity came came to go over to Reading for. Uh, three or four weeks and done quite well when I went over there and and Steve Koppel offered me the the chance to stay there for the for the season. Unbelievable. Um, to see how I get on, yeah. So that that progressed quite quickly, like you said. Yeah, and and the, the great thing with Reading at that time, I think you were a part of a group that was this Irish contingent and something very special and goals that were scored, <laughs> but the fact that you had the likes of Wexford's Kevin Doyle, mm. Tipperary Shane Long, mm. local lads, yeah. You yeah. know, and you had Hunt over as well, didn't you? Stephen Hunt was Stephen there. Hunt was there um, too, yeah. yeah, a couple of other like yeah, I mean there was I think there was six or seven of us. Johnny Hayes from Dublin was right. was on the fringes of the first team as well. Darren Stapleton was there, so um Graham Stack was sub goalie. There was there was there was a huge Irish cohort there. So it was almost um as daunting as it was, I suppose, going over at that age into that environment, that that full time professional environment with seasoned pros. At the same time, you're there, like you know, Kevin Doyle lives ten minutes from me at home, yeah. you know, and I and I knew him. I didn't know him overly well, but I, but I knew him. Um, I got to know Shane Long very quickly. We kind of lived together for, for five or six months over there as well. So just a good, honest to God, Tipperary chap as well. Like you know, so we were all kind of thrown in the deep end together. Um, and we used to have great crack. To be fair, it was it was brilliant. You know, if we weren't if we were training in the morning, we were out playing a bit of hurling in the afternoon like you know just just, just having like normal lads. just just like normal lads just like normal lads and tell me i mean obviously it's well documented it was something i would have tried to keep quiet inside in here but my colleagues have made it quite known that i'm a manchester united supporter so mm, sorry about that <laughs> when we're looking at uh, United and you're talking about Steve Coppel Steve Coppel tremendous career at Manchester United and a tremendous player but obviously a very well educated man as well mm. as well noted about his, his tactical plays and just how much he worked behind the scene what was it like being around Steve Coppel on a daily basis yeah, he was—he was—he was a bit of an enigma. To be fair, he was—he um, uh, very much had a different way of doing things than certainly I had ever seen before, and a lot of the other um, more seasoned guys over there had seen before. You know, he was—he wasn't in your face, and uh, be many days that you wouldn't really see him. He'd be just kind of sitting in the background, observing everything. Uh, very shrewd. Um, but like you said, you know, if you were sitting in um, on kind of tactical meetings and stuff like that, he might speak for three or four minutes, but it would be to the point. Um, this is what we want. This is what we don't want. This is the danger. Um, so yeah, very, very, very clever. You could see little glimpses of him on the on the training pitch as well, and just the type of player that he was. Um, you know, he was he was really, really top class England international um, as well, and I think he was he he uh, his career was cut short with a bad injury. Yeah. But um, yeah, re- really clever guy, very, very astute manager, and he had that team. Um, he just had that team playing so well, um, you know, and really trusting in what he wanted them to do. And I, I think they racked up 106 or seven points or something that year, like a crazy amount of points. They absolutely walked it. 
went on and had a great season the following year in the Premier League as well you know so he was he, he knew what he was doing that's for sure he absolutely did know what he was doing and it was every Irish supporter of whatever team Red always kept an eye on Reading that year because it was just there was something very special about that team and the amount of goals that it was producing yeah for sure yeah now it's the dream of so many young Irish players to go across the water and to play the percentage of those that actually achieve it is so so small mm. you came back and had a tremendous time in your own part in terms of the local game and you're key and such a central figure to the foundations of what Wexford Youths were at the time the, 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 the club's first competitive goal scorer leading as captain wonderful experience for you a great experience yeah um, to be fair you know like Reading got promoted to the Premier League huge amount of money came into the club um, and you know let's call a spade a spade I wasn't going to be I, I just wasn't ready to play at that level you know um, it was going to be a bridge too far so yeah a number of us got let go I came back uh, on loan back to the League of Ireland for, for a few months and uh, ran out to contract him and kind of was I suppose it was looking like I was going to go back to Bray um, I was talking to Pat Devlin again and that's, that's where I thought I was going to go but obviously Mick was getting the Wexford Utes underway um, and I said you know what um, it'd be great to actually just go back and Find a, find a bit more love for the game I suppose because you can drift away from it a little bit at that time with a bit of rejection as well um, so went back and we started that in 2007 and, and like you say just just things really kicked off it got off to a savage start um, we got a huge following behind us and a great buzz around the county with it um, and yeah and then went on and, and I suppose had had five, six, seven years with a few different clubs in League of Ireland and really enjoyed it you know um, it can be a tough slog at times obviously League of Ireland Um you know, it's 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 very much amateur. You're doing your day's work, and you know, uh, much like the GA lads, you're you're going, you're training three, four times a week, and you could be playing anywhere in the country at the weekend. But um, I really enjoyed it. I have to say, yeah, had some had some great nights, had some great nights with the youths, um, with Pats, few few tough uh, tough situations with like Zadraha to going into relegation battles and stuff like that. Yeah, but uh, great experience overall. You know. And the esteem of being a man who represented two teams in the southeast. What, what was the, I suppose, what was the contrast going between Wexford and Waterford at the time? I know it's progressed on massively, as we said. Yeah. There's so much change over the, like, year by year in the league. But yeah. even then and around that time, did you notice much contrast going from the setups? I suppose there was, to be fair, because Waterford, in fairness, have, have been such a, you know, they've such experience down there in terms of League of Ireland. You know, everybody everybody knows about Waterford United. Um, an awful lot of Wexford guys have, have transitioned over and played with them over the years. Um, so I was very happy to, to call Stephen Henderson was over the team at the time and um, I met himself and John um, and we had a good chat and he was he was bringing in some really good players I think um, uh, Fletch was coming back to Waterford at the time and we had, we had a nice looking team to be fair um, the year didn't pan out great um, in ter- for myself I got I, I tore a hamstring in the middle of the year and that kind of ruled me out for the, for the rest of it but we, we were kind of going very well and looked like we were going to get promoted but it just slipped away from us in the end but in, in terms of the people of Waterford and the club um, it was a brilliant experience to be fair um, you know a real good traditional League of Ireland uh, side and that, that's what it was when it went down yeah and it's it's the same to that today trying to rekindle its spirit mm. and get itself back up into the top flight battling it out obviously at the moment with Cork City and Galway yeah two very very strong teams and Wexford then as well going from strength to strength under Ian Ryan yeah and uh, look with yourself you had a tremendous career you know great memories 
we look forward to hearing what happens next. Is it, is it over for you? Is there anything? Yeah, no. Look, at I'm I'm uh, I'm playing a, I'm playing a little bit of GA with my my club at home. Uh, I'm 36 years of age and I'm feeling every bit of it now at, at, <laughs> at this stage. So really enjoyed it. Uh, enjoyed my time at, at at the few different clubs that I was at. Um, and Waterford, I have to say, I really enjoyed that in particular. But um, yeah, no, for me, it's um, we have a little one at home now, six months old. So she takes priority now, and um, hopefully she can go and make the millions for us now that, that I didn't make. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks a lot for popping in today. Great talking to you. You too. Thanks, Sean. Sports Beat with John Kennedy Motors, Cashel Road, Clonmel. You'll never take a wrong turn with Toyota. View our full range of cars at johnkennedymotors.ie. I'm very pleased to welcome writer, golf broadcaster, and Waterford man, Mr. Ray Scott, to the show. Ray, it's great to speak with you today. How are you? Good, Sean, and yourself? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Now, I know you were lucky enough to be on course for the 150th Open, but given your roots, what better place to start than with Waterford's Seamus Power? Following the astonishing 385-odd places that he rose in the world rankings, the first PGA Tour win, and I suppose representation across all four majors, Power's rise has been the stuff of dreams, hasn't it? Yeah, a lot of people talk about Seamus Power, and you know it, he obviously jumped onto everybody's radar last year when he won the Barbasol Championship. But, you know, he turned pro in 2011 and at that stage he was 1400th in the world, I think, at the end of 2011. And his rise has been meteoric. But they've been talking about Seamus Power for a while. Um, and I suppose he's an overnight success that took 11 or 12 years in the making. Um, uh, just he didn't make the cut uh, at the Open Championship. But, you know, Seamus is inside the, in the FedEx Cup. He's, uh, he's inside the top 30, which is gets him into the Tour Championship if it stays that way over the next couple of weeks. But, um, you know, it has been a superb season for him. He's had tied third in the Sony Open in Hawaii, tied fourth in the RSM Classic. He was fifth in the match play, beaten in the quarterfinals, if you think, if you remember back. You know, it has been a phenomenal season for Seamus and uh, all credit to him because he's put a lot of work into it. A hundred percent. And I think one of the greatest ways of providing a synopsis as to just how good it has been for him is the fact that we were surprised that he missed the cut at the Open. That's that's how far he's come along, that it's almost an expectation that he's going to be competing in the final days of every major tournament. Now, I suppose, given that progression, do, do you see a major in his not-so-distant future? The, 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 the golf world is very, very fragmented at the moment. Um, Seamus is rise. I think he's inside, as I said, uh, he's, his goal is to remain inside the top 50 in the world that gets you into all the big events a major I think the Open Championship is probably one that really would have suited him he you know he grew up playing boys golf for Ireland he was uh, he played a lot of links golf and you, you mentioned that we were talking about him contending last week you know I had a few uh, sneaky sneaky euro on him uh, didn't come to pass but everything is a learning process for him and even when we spoke to him after missing the cut on the Friday you know he said that's golf and I've learned from this and I'll go on and, and so, you know, why can't he compete in a major? Why, why isn't there a major in him? You know, we've, we've seen the phenomenal record that the Irish have in, in majors, in particular in the Open Championship, which represents a lot of the best uh, opportunities for, for the Irish golfers because of Lynx golf. Um, so why not? Why can't Seamus have a, have a major? Yeah, well, definitely. And I suppose not every Irish golfer can be Rory McIlroy and have such tremendous success at the early stages of turning professional. But I suppose moving on to Roy McIlroy, despite some of the best golf that he's played in years, he seems to be kind of stuck in a position at the moment of being thereabouts without actually getting over the finishing line. I mean, it's now eight years and counting without a major win. 
What, what is your take on the County Down man and his current situation on the course and with his game? This was the opportunity for him to make that breakthrough. He hasn't won a major since 2014. And in that intervening period, you've had a raft of young guns uh, come in to challenge him. You know, when he came on the scene, Tiger was kind of a, just at the, start, uh, at the height of his powers. And Rory was seen as the next big hope. And then he came out of the, the blocks and he won those four majors. And then everything stalled from a major point of view. But he's still a winner, um, you know. And he's won, he's won already this season. But when you look at his, his opportunities to win majors, he's had a fantastic season this season in majors. He's had top fives. He's had uh, tied second. And he's finished third, obviously, this past weekend. But this was the one I think that he's going to rue and he's going to regret because he had it in his in his hands. But it's very easy when you look when you strip back everything. You look at the the, the performance of Cam Smith, but you look at Rory McIlroy. They talk about driving for show and putting for dough. Uh, Rory just epitomised that particularly on Sunday because he has eighteen greens in regulation, but he had thirty six putts. Um, he didn't he didn't get into trouble off the tee whatsoever, but. When you consider Cam Smith had only 29 putts, and over the course of the four days, he had 30 putts on average per round. Rory was ranked 55th in the field. Now, if you think only the top 70 in tight, I think 83 made the cut. So he was now near the bottom of the list in terms of putting. 32 overall, but 36 putts in that final round killed him because he went play safe golf. Now, can, um, can he get back to it? Yes, of course he can. And I'll give you a little interesting snippet. In 2012, Adam Scott threw away the Open. Um, uh, he he missed out, crashed and burned kind of in the last five or six holes yeah. and came out the following April at the, at the Masters and won it. So I'm sure Rory would perfectly forget about St. Andrews if he could uh, land that ultimate goal, which is the Grand Slam, and win the Masters at Augusta. Oh, absolutely. And wouldn't it just be amazing if he could do that? Uh, as someone who's a, a geek in the statistics world and, and, and looking at all these sporting records across all these fields, I desperately want him to achieve that. I think it would be the epitome. And I honestly think he deserves it as well. When, 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 when you're moving, I suppose, what you were just talking about there into that last day, it seemed to be a straight shootout between McElroy and uh, Victor Hovland. Now, the real diehard golfing fan will look at Cam Smith and Cameron Young in the background and say, these guys are not out of it. But then at the same time, rounds of 8-under and 7-under to finish the Open was just fitting. Yeah, that was it. And I think you, you've summed it up there because um, Rory and Victor Hovland started the day on 16-under par. Smith and Young were four behind, right? So if you take it a very logically, you're in the final round of the major, the par is 72. So if Rory shoots 72, Cam Smith or Cameron Young has to have to shoot 68. If Rory shoots 70, Cam Smith has to shoot 66. Rory shot 70 and Cam Smith shot 64. Didn't, nobody expected it. And I think he was watching Victor Hovland. I think he, that's who we thought was going to be his, uh, his biggest threat. And um, when Victor Hovland started dropping shots early in that final round, he kind of perceived, oh yeah, you know what? Uh, he's not my competition. So now all I have to do is not make any mistakes and I'll have the claret jug. And then, of course, you know, I saw what Cam Smith did around the turn, five birdies in a row. And suddenly, it's like he came up on the blind side on the motorway. He was, he was just going past before Rory could react because he didn't, he didn't birdie nine where he almost drove the green. He didn't birdie 12. And then the, the last par five on the back nine is the 14th, which everybody was birdieing. And suddenly Rory didn't birdie that. 
because he went chasing because he suddenly saw, uh-oh, I've got some work to do. And then 15, 16, 17 and 18 coming home at the Open Championship at St. Andrews, they're probably one of the hardest finishing stretches in golf. So he ran out of holes and in his post-match, uh, post-round conference, he turned around and he said, um, you know, I didn't do anything wrong out there today, but I didn't do anything right either. And that could have summed up his tournament. There's nothing more I can really say about that. You've hit the nail on the head. It pretty much covered everything I was going to say about an inability to be able to accelerate at the rate that was required to be able to, to keep pace with what was coming behind him. And I suppose it just goes to show that no matter how many years you're a seasoned professional, you learn something with every single golfing tournament that goes by. And McIlroy is no different to anybody else with that. Here it's often in sport, people are involved, whether it's hurling, whether it's uh, soccer, whether it's golf, um, you learn far more from defeat than you ever do from success. Yes. And, uh, you know, Rory will certainly have learned something from that. And as I said, please God, it'll help him drive on. And, you know, the big disappointment, I suppose, for me as a golf fan is that, uh, you know, we're in the middle of July and the majors are over. Yeah. You know, when they moved, when they moved the PGA Championship back into May to try and facilitate the FedEx Cup, um, you know, I think it's taken a little bit of something out of golf because I think you have one event left in the PGA, to, um, sorry, two events left in the PGA Tour in the regular season. Then you're into the FedEx Cup playoffs and then, you know, the PGA Tour is stopping. So you know, there's nothing left for the rest of the year. Uh, you know, there's going to be a few, as Ernie Els famously re- referred to them as the uh, the wheelbarrow re- wheelbarrow events where you, they got lots of appearance money. Um, there isn't a whole load for, for those golfers. So, it's a long way, nine months up to, to, to the, the first major of 2023 at the Masters. So it is very, very difficult. And it's a, it's, it's a shame. But, you know, that's, that's uh, the powers that be. And I suppose money talks as well. Isn't that the way golf is right now? That's absolutely it. And that's something I'm going to touch on with you as well. I just can't leave talking about the Open. I suppose for everything that it was with back-to-back eagles, bogeys galore, Incredibly emotional scenes around Tiger Woods at the course, wasn't there? Yes, there. You know, there, there were a whole host of subplots right throughout the week, and uh, to be there and to watch them unfold was very, very dramatic. And you saw, you mentioned the back-to-back eagles from Shane Lowry, the first time in history that um, that a player had back-to-back eagles on par fours. Right? Uh, you had Bill Mickelson did it in the Open Championship at Lism, uh, I think, uh, back in two thousand one. But uh, that was a par four and a par five. But this is this is historic. You had, as you mentioned, Tiger, um, that emotional walk over the Swilkin Burn on Friday. He had missed the cut. And there was a lot of people wondering, you know, was this the last time? Because we don't know whether uh, the Open Championship rota for St. Andrews is going to revert back to um, the fives and the tens, the multiples. They've always, they've always had the Opens on a date, either the 10, 20, 30, uh, or the fives, and because of COVID, they obviously uh, lost out, and then they held it here for um, for the 150th at St Andrews this year. So, is it going to be 2027, or are they going to wait till 2030? If it's 2030, we're not going to see Tiger Woods there. If it's 2027, maybe, but it is very, very sad. So that walk over to Silicon Bridge on Friday, you know, was at the end of an era uh, to see him walk there. Uh, you had um, then obviously the the undercurrent in across golf at the moment is this whole LIV, and um, to see a lot of the players involved there. Um, you know, I'm sure Greg Norman was rubbing his hands in glee and at the hopes of perhaps a live golfer winning the Open. And obviously, there's all the speculation about Cam Smith. Uh, he denied it as post match press. 
sorry, he failed to deny it, I suppose is the best way to put it, at the post-round uh, post, uh, con- press conference. And it is, it is, golf is in a very strange place at the moment. And, um, you know, we've had the, the news over the last couple of days that uh, Live Golf are in negotiations with major corporations to sponsor the team element. Now, that is going to be a game changer. And uh, if you're going to see where this talks that AT&T, the American Telecommunications Company, are uh, signing a deal worth a billion dollars. Now, you know, we're talking about telephone numbers here, billion dollars uh, in to sponsoring golf. Uh, Adidas are another one, uh, another company that are being uh, mentioned in all of this. And uh, if that change, uh, that could be the game changer that really will establish Live Golf on the golfing um, landscape. What's your take on it all? How do you feel about this as a golf purist that you are? The amount of money that is there at this moment in time? As a golf purist, I find it um, very, very difficult to comprehend. Um, you know, the moral moral as- aspect of it aside, just go pure golf. If you turn around and you go, excuse me, you are want to be the best golfer in the world, but you now want to play 54 holes of golf with no cut. Um, if you look at the previous events, Pumpkin Ridge, and you look at the one, the Centurion in London, um, the player to finish last was 23 over par and picked up $120,000 for his troubles. Now, that's not, that's yeah, not right. Madness. Madness. You know, there has to be an element of, um, there has to be an element of uh, competition, right? You have to be the best players in the world. And this is the big story, you know, are the best players in the world? Should they be allowed to play in the majors? Should the live golfers be allowed to play? But if they're not playing competitive golf, they're going to drop down those world rankings very, very quickly. And so it may not be a question for it. Um, what Live Golf has done is it has suddenly forced the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour to talk. You know, uh, they're kind of circling the wagons, I suppose, if you want to if you want to say that. And they're now in a situation where they're improving, they're addressing issues that are, are have been legacy issues really across uh, golf. You know, when Greg Norman kind of first mooted a, a breakaway tour, it was back in the nineties. There was a lot of issues, PGA Tour and the and what was the European Tour then? They didn't even talk. There was a lot of um, animosity between the two tours. Now, now they're the best of friends because they know they've got to be, uh, you know, they've got to come together to try and sort this. But on a practical basis, you see the caddies are now being looked after. You saw at the Genesis Scottish Open um, the week before the Open, the hole in one prize. Um, there was a car for the hole in one, and there was a, also a car for the caddy of the player. Right, so suddenly they're beginning to address this, and they're forcing a little bit of change, which might be positive for the game. But the, you know, the money aspect of it, you can understand a few players in the twilight of their careers. I've described it elsewhere as the live golf at the moment is kind of a pre-Champions Tour tour. But if they start to sign the young guns, which is a very clever strategy, they're going to be the legacy golfers in England if it establishes itself. Um, can it sustain it? You know, can they keep spending billions of dollars? I'm not so sure either. So I think they've got a window of about three or four years where if they have to establish it on a firm footing, it might be here to stay. The amount of unknown variables that will surround it will continue to rear their head at every single corner. And just when you think you have a grasp on what's happening, something else is going to fear its head out the door and you're going to have to try to deal with that particular variable as well. One thing is for certain anyway, there's as much drama off the course as there is on it. Ray, it's been great chatting with you. Um, I'd hope to touch base with you in a couple of months to catch up on what will surely be an interesting run of events and, of course, that off-course drama as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Sean. Sports Beat with John Kennedy Motors, Cashel Road, Clonmel. You'll never take a wrong turn with Toyota. View our full range of cars at johnkennedymotors.ie.
That's it for this week's show. As always, feel free to drop me a mail at sport at beat102103.com and I'll happily get back to you. Dean's up next with Beat Anthems, but before that, if you're part of a club in the region, we've got something very special for you. Club Focus with Eco Solar Energy, the solar experts you can rely on. Make the cleaner choice. EcoSolarEnergy.ie. How do you fancy winning a grand for your club? Club Focus is back. Each month, I'll visit a club in the region and I'll give them a chance to take their place in the limelight, featuring on air, online, and across our socials. At the end of 12 months, one lucky club will bag €1,000. The winning club will be chosen through a public vote, so why not use this opportunity to attract new members? Club Focus is part of Beat's ongoing commitment to support the work that local clubs do, while also celebrating the positive impact that they have on local communities. So if you want to get your club involved, simply head to beat102103.com forward slash club focus to apply now. Club Focus with Eco Solar Energy, the solar experts you can rely on. Make the cleaner choice. EcoSolarEnergy.ie